Coming to the seventh chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, where God being merciful to us and blessing your pastor, we'll continue our study of the great book of Hebrews. I don't want to get so precise that we can compare the chapters in Hebrews, but the seventh chapter of Hebrews is indeed an excellent chapter. And I hope this morning to make Hebrews chapter 7 as plain as the ABCs that you learned when you were about five years of age. Hebrews 7 is not difficult. There's not a phrase in it you need to be confused with. It is a chapter that by degrees, by different comparisons of no more than five verses, makes different comparisons between Jesus Christ and Melchizedek, Jesus Christ and Abraham, and Jesus Christ and Aaron. And I hope that this morning you'll be able to see that clearly. Let us, however, remember before we start the seventh chapter of Hebrews, the importance of the subject under consideration. The book of Hebrews ends of its comparison of Jesus Christ at chapter 5 and verse 10, where it ends with a period by saying, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. To that point, we have had four chapters and ten verses describing the excellency, the preeminence, the glory, and the superiority of Jesus Christ to any measure of religion. And the religion used is the greatest religion of all. It was the religion of the Jews under the Old Testament, the law given by the disposition of angels under Moses. At Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, we begin an interruption that runs all the way through the end of chapter 6. That interruption is a rebuke for the ignorance on the part of the Hebrew Christians. The four verses ending chapter 5 rebuke the Hebrews for not knowing the Scriptures, for not knowing the meteor things of the doctrine of Christ. And therefore, Paul was unsure how to even speak to them. He said, we know many things, but they're hard to be uttered, seeing you people are so ignorant, dull of hearing. And then in chapter 6, he gives them that severe warning that if they do not make progress, but if they were to slip back, to fall away from the gospel that he had taught them, from the gospel they had learned, there was no need to preach again of repentance from dead works, because it would be impossible to renew them again to repentance. God was dealing with the Jews here at the last hour of their nation's history. He was dealing here with the Jews with the most precious blessing He ever gave them, and if they fell away from it, if they neglected it, if they let it slip, those are phrases used in the first five chapters, it would be impossible for them to renew their position in the gospel. They would be cut off because God would utter an oath against them. The same oath He uttered against the Israelites as they stood at the Jordan River when they refused to take the land of Canaan. He swore they shall not enter into My rest. And for Jews at this point to have rejected the gospel and to have gone back against what they had been taught, God would swear against them also. 
Verse 20 of chapter 6, however, is a transitional verse. For those of you who remember high school speech, if you've been born in the last 30 years, though, you may not have had it. Because speech isn't important any longer. You know it's more important to learn Spanish than it is to learn how to speak. You'll never use Spanish and you speak every day of your lives. It's another example of the perversion of our modern society. But the 20th verse of chapter 6 is what is called a transitional clause. Between points and an outline, you are supposed to have transitional sentences that move you from one point to the next point. And this is a very clear one. He's been dealing with a rebuke and an exhortation to lay hold on the promises that we have through God's oath. And he just concludes it with the words, whether the forerunner is for us entered. Now, he very well could have ended it with a period right there, because that's his point of the last half of chapter 6. But he goes on to say, even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, pulling the words again from chapter 5 and verse 10 to tell you I'm through with my interruption. He, go, he runs right back to chapter 5 and verse 10. It's a transitional verse to, to let us know that chapter 7 is going to take up where he left off in chapter 5. And it's going to take up with meatier things than we covered in the first five chapters. It requires more careful thinking in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, and 12, than it did in the first five chapters. But the theme is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that there is not another place in the New Testament where Jesus Christ is called priest? Nowhere else in the New Testament is Jesus Christ called priest, even by Paul. Nowhere else is the emphasis placed upon Jesus Christ offering a sacrifice, the function of a priest, but here in the book of Hebrews. And chapter 7 is preeminently the chapter of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, we learn three things about the priesthood of Christ. Number one, Jesus was made a man so that he could relate to us. Remember, chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Every high priest taken, taketh taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. We all want a priest that's able to relate. I hate using anything that sounds like going to the priest, a priest of the Roman Catholic Church. But how many times have you heard the words, Father, forgive me for I have sinned, and then the person goes on to confess their sin. Now, you did that under the Old Testament, which the poor, ignorant Catholics have picked up and tried to carry into the New Testament. You went to the priest and confessed your sins, and he offered a sacrifice for them. But when you confessed your sin, you wanted a priest that would say, I understand, son. I've been guilty of that same crime myself. Or I've suffered that same temptation. Go in peace. God has forgiven you. You want a priest like that, that when you pray to him, he can relate to your problems. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5 tell us that Jesus was made a priest, verses, the last two verses of chapter 4, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. That makes him a good priest. He was tempted like as we are. So when you get on your knees and pray, 
you are forgetting the things that you have learned. If you feel that you are some worthless reprobate, Jesus was tempted in all of those points like as you. And if you go to your knees, despising yourself unnecessarily and unjustly, that is that you're almost beyond the help of Christ, there's no one else like you, you're the worst there has ever been, you disgrace the name of Christ, you're not fit for His church, you're sinning against Christ by not coming boldly. Why does chapter 16 say, let us therefore come boldly? Why should we come boldly? Because we have a priest that can commiserate with our temptations. You're despising the work of Christ and you're despising the temptations He suffered in the flesh if you don't think He endured the things that you have endured and that the other saints of God that have lived since Christ have endured the same things also. We need to remember that. The second point about Christ that we learn is in verses 4 through 6. He had a proper call to the ministry. Any priest that you would go to, you'd want to make sure he had proper credentials. Why do you think when you enter a pastor's office, even today, what do they have usually hanging on their wall but an ordination certificate? That they have been duly ordained after New Testament order, giving them the credentials of a New Testament minister. Not everyone can execute the office of a New Testament minister, and neither could you execute the office of priest unless you had been properly called of God. And verses 4 through 6 say, No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. God specifically said, I want Aaron to be the father of all the priests, and Aaron shall be my high priest. Jesus Christ was called just as definitely. In fact, it'll be better, as we see this morning, with the words, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. That's his call. It's in verse 6. So verses 4 through 6 teach us he had the proper call. He was able to commiserate with men. He had a proper call. And verses 7 through 10 describe his intercessory success. When he interceded, God heard him. And we read that in the last part of verse 7. He prayed with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. When Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was heard. You say, but he prayed that the cup might possibly depart from him, and the cup didn't depart. God doesn't always answer your prayers the way he hears them. He heard the prayer. I mean, when the Apostle Paul prayed for the thorn in the flesh to be taken away, and he prayed three times for it, did God hear that prayer? Yes. He just didn't answer it the way Paul may have desired. He granted grace sufficient for the task, and so it was with the Lord Jesus Christ. We read that angels came and strengthened him in the very garden of Gethsemane. Three comparisons we have in chapter 5. As we look at chapter 7, and we're going to move through it very quickly, I promise you this morning. As we look at chapter 7, remember, Three things. The sinful state and condition of man. How can you describe that in just a moment or a sentence or two? We have sinned, transgressed, violated, trampled under our feet the commandments of the Most High God. 
we have done everything equal to what Adam did. We have also done what Adam did, for when Adam sinned, we sinned in him. We are now in a state and a condition before God, whereby God, by His nature, is required to press us under His feet and extract every ounce of blood from your veins for your sin. He must cause you to bear infinite pain. And since you cannot take infinite pain at one time, He'll get as close to infinite pain as He can and cause you to suffer it forever, an infinite period of time. That's the state of man. From when Adam sinned and realized the state he threw himself in, he fled from the presence of God. And men have done that ever since. And they have tried to erect for themselves priests. Because the sinful state of man requires a priest to appease the infinite God. The first point you need to consider this morning is the sinful state of man. God will extract from you infinite punishment in hell if He has not extracted that infinite punishment from Jesus Christ. He will grind you under His feet. The smoke of your torment will ascend up forever and ever as He will cause you every degree and type of physical, mental, and spiritual suffering. That's the state of man. And then when you look at the state of God, He is so infinitely holy, of purer eyes than to behold iniquity approvingly, He cannot, the Bible says, clear the guilty. God's nature will not let Him simply say, well, I forgive you. I'll forget that one. Try better next time. Try harder next time. God cannot do that. The Bible says very clearly, He will by no means acquit the guilty. That's Scripture. There is no acquittal in the throne room of God. There is only substitution. God is so infinitely high, it's not like when you stole something from your third grade teacher and you went and confessed your crime afterwards and you shed crocodile tears and they ran all down your face and you told her how sorry you were for what you had done. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. Just forget about it. God never does that. That is weakness in authority. Thank God we're weak. Thank God we're weak. God never does that. He cannot do that. He cannot acquit wicked or guilty parties. Therefore, do we have a little distance between man and God as far as coming together and making peace with each other? Men, since the days of Adam and his son Abel, have tried to find a priest that would stand in between them that God would accept as a representative of his throne room, and that man could have confidence in that he could relate and commiserate with his sins. Every religion has had its priests. Name me a religion that has not had a priest. I'll take you to the Babylonians, to the Egyptians, to the Philistines, to the Moabites. And they all had their priests. Abel was his own priest because it was called the age of the patriarchs. 
We'll see that today in chapter 7. In the patriarchal age, every father and husband was the priest for his wife and children and the servants in his household. Noah, when he removed himself from the ark, he offered sacrifices for the eight souls that were saved in that ark. He was his own priest. Men have always had to have priests. And the Catholic Church today, the most essential element to the church, and if you'll read their own writings, they'll say it, is their priesthood. Because through the priests, men obtain the forgiveness of their sins. They have their conscience salved and calmed. And a sacrifice with the Holy Host, and I speak as a fool, is offered on their altars where a sacrifice is given to God that supposedly pays for sins. Every religion has had to have its priest. And brethren, if anyone has to have a priest, it's the people gathered in this room this morning because we understand the sinful state of man better than any religion that's ever existed because God's revealed it to us in His Word. Not only that, we understand the infinite perfection of God greater than any religion that's ever existed because God has revealed that also. Our God is not a stone. Therefore, we have the greatest infinite between man, ourselves, and God. We need a priest more than any group of people have ever needed a priest. Now, if you were a Jew, what would you appreciate most about the Old Testament religion? The priesthood. The priesthood. You say, what about the law? What did the law give them? The, the priesthood. It gave them the law, but it gave them all the instructions for a priesthood that God would accept. Do you know what that meant to have a beautiful, orderly, God-blessed priesthood that you could go to with your bullock or your sheep or your turtle dove or your offerings of grain and offer up a sacrifice to God and have that priest as God's messenger tell you your sins were forgiven? The priesthood under the Old Testament was a great privilege that those Jews had. Now, what they've done is they've followed Christ. They've been baptized, just like we baptized young Tim this morning. They followed Christ. They've heard the gospel. But when they followed Christ, guess what that required? Leaving the priesthood of the Old Testament. They no longer had the access, as they once did, to those Old Testament priests that would offer sacrifices for them. And so they stood in doubt in their mind about continuing in their profession. That's why we read about a hundred times in different ways in this book. Let us hold fast our profession. They were in danger of departing from that profession because they stood in doubt on the priesthood that stood between them and God. They knew they needed a priest. They knew they had left God's priests. Those were not pagan priests. Those were God's priests. Why, those priests, as I told you before, could stand in front of men and call fire down from heaven. They could cause leprosy to appear instantaneously. They could cause women who were guilty of adultery to swell on the spot and rot. They could go once a year into the very presence of God and not die. 
standing in front of that Ark of the Covenant. They left that. Now we come to Hebrews chapter 7. The first argument in Hebrews chapter 7 is what I call the resume of Melchizedek. How much do we know about Melchizedek? Abraham was returning from a slaughter of four kings. The king of Sodom came out to greet him and thank him for what he had done with his 318 trained servants. Also, Melchizedek came forth, who was king of Salem, which happens to be a shortened name for Jerusalem. He was king of Jerusalem. His name means king of righteousness. He was the priest of the Most High God. His position as the priest of the Most High God was so well known that he blessed Abraham. He blessed God for the great victory. He offered bread and wine in the first communion service. Not exactly like what we'll celebrate this morning, but a little service of common union and worship before God. And then Abraham paid him tithes of all the spoils. That's all we know from Genesis chapter 14. It does not tell us anything more about Melchizedek. The only other time his name appears in the Bible is Psalm 110 verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is the order of Melchizedek? That was left in shadowy figures for all those poor Old Testament saints. You have it revealed to you in Hebrews chapter 7. The resume of Melchizedek, verses 1 through 3. For those of you who like to write in your Bible, I would mark off verses 1 through 3. This whole chapter is broken into very definite and convenient groups of verses. Verses 1 through 3 is the resume of Melchizedek. Remember, Jesus Christ, and we've been told this several times already, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we need to learn as much as we can about Melchizedek in order to learn about Jesus Christ. So let's look at the resume. Verse 1 of chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, there was a city named Jerusalem as early as the time of Abraham. I proved that a couple of weeks ago in the fifth chapter. The shortened name of Jerusalem is Salem. Can anyone give me the Old Testament reference that proves the shortened name of Jerusalem is Salem. Psalm 76 and verse 2, that's correct. Melchizedek was king of Jerusalem. He was also priest of the Most High God. There were at this time a few select men that God singled out to become priests not only for their families, but for others also. We read about those priests when Moses entered into the wilderness. Do you remember where I showed you in Exodus chapter 19 that there were a whole group of men who were priests that had to basically resign from their job when God made the Levites and the sons of Aaron priests? God had dealt with men to be priests. Moses' father-in-law was a priest. They're on the backside of the desert where Moses met his wife. Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High God. God granted him special privilege 
to offer sacrifices, grant blessings, and take tithes from those who worshipped the Most High God. And this man, Melchizedek, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. It's a function of priests to bless. And if you've ever been to a Catholic church, they're always trying to bless the people. You ever read the Old Testament? The priests bless the people. The priests bless the people. They're even given a blessing. Look at Numbers chapter 6. Look at Numbers chapter 6. It is a function of priests to bless. And I'm going to slip little th- little points in that we're going to pick up as we go through the chapter. Who is greater? The blessor or the blessee? The blessor, obviously. If he can grant the blessing, he's obviously greater in authority and value than the one who receives the blessing. Paul will make that point. But verse 1 tells us that Melchizedek blessed. Let's just see that a function of the priest is to bless. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee, and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee, and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Blessing from God upon Old Testament Israelites came through chosen men. The priests put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. If the priests bless, they were blessed. Look now back at Genesis chapter 14, and let's see the blessing that Melchizedek gave Abraham. Genesis chapter 14. Three short verses are all we have about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Abraham is returning from the slaughter of the four kings. He's rescued his nephew Lot, recovered all the goods, the servants, the wives, the children. In verse 18, we read, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, that is Abraham, gave him, that is Melchizedek, tithes of all. Now you'd need, to, you'd need Hebrews chapter 7 to understand that last sentence, wouldn't you? And he gave him tithes of all. How do you know that Melchizedek didn't give tithes to Abraham? The Jews would love to believe that. They thought Abraham was the greatest man that had ever lived. I mean, he was the father of the Jews. But Paul in Hebrews chapter 7 tells us the antecedents for those two pronouns that aren't obvious there in that verse. That's all we have about Melchizedek. Back to Hebrews chapter 7, where we can pick up some more. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First, being by interpretation king of righteousness. The resume of Melchizedek would contain a definition of his name. His name is a Hebrew name that we have, 
transliterated into our English Bibles. Melchizedek. It means what? King of righteousness. I mean, it is stated right there in the verse. Thank God he does interpret some Hebrew words for us. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. We go further, and after that, you know, the definition of your name is more important than your title. After that, king of Salem, which is king of peace. Jerusalem or Salem means peace. And he was king of peace. Let's notice a couple things about Melchizedek. He was king and priest. King of Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God. His name was king of righteousness and king of peace. Any similarities there? Is Jesus Christ king? I read over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's king of kings and lord of lords. Is Jesus Christ a priest? <laughs> Are we studying the book of Hebrews? Indeed, he's a priest. He is a priest and king. Is he a king of righteousness? Look at Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jesus Christ is a king of righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Oh, that's a nice-sounding verse. A son of David that would be a righteous branch and a king. There you have king of righteousness, but it gets better. Verse 6, In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness, king of righteousness. The kingship of Jesus Christ is the first kingship this world has ever seen that is solely and entirely based upon righteousness. You know how much I glory in a king against whom there is no rising up. I love dominion. I wish we had a king against whom there was no rising up. But remember, brethren, if you have a king like that, you better be on your knees praying. He's a king of righteousness. Because a king with absolute authority and is not righteous is a terrible evil to live under. Why do you think this nation was formed but by men who were fleeing kings of unrighteousness in England? Jesus Christ is a king of righteousness. After that, he's king of peace. And I read in Scripture, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, that a son would be given whose name would be wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You say it says Prince, it doesn't say King. Well, do you want to name me who's King and who's he's Prince? Two? King and Prince are both titles of royalty describing He who is ruler over all, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is King and Priest, He's King of Righteousness, and He is Himself the Prince of Peace. Now verse 3. Oh, how many have struggled with verse 3. They've looked at verse 3. They've wondered. They've guessed. They've hypothesized about Melchizedek. Describing him in his resume, we read, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days 
nor end of life. Five characteristics of Melchizedek. If he had filled out an employment application and said, give your father and your mother, he had none. As far as Scripture records. Melchizedek was a man, just like you, just like me. He had a father. He had a mother. He had descent. He had a beginning of his life, and he had an end of his life. But, does the Word of God in the Old Testament tell us any of that? No. It introduces this character and then withdraws without telling us mother, father, descent, beginning of days, or end of days. You go read any other priest in the Old Testament. Every other priest, the most essential element in their briefcase was their genealogical record. Look at Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. You'd be amazed at how many people think Jesus Christ lived in the Old Testament under the name of Melchizedek. He wasn't Jesus Christ because the next clause goes on to say, made like unto the Son of God. He wasn't the Son of God. He was made like unto the Son of God. He was just an obscure picture of the Son of God. Look at Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 64. Let me give you the background here. The Jews have come back from Babylon. They were taken captive 70 years. They've come back. They're rebuilding the temple. They want to begin offering sacrifices again in their temple. We need some priests to do it. Well, the priests have to be the descendants of Aaron. To prove you're a descendant of Aaron, guess what you need? An up-to-date resume. What if you couldn't produce one? Verse 64. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. Every priest in the Old Testament had to be able to prove his lineage to Aaron. You'd want to prove it. Would you want to go into the Holy of Holies without an up-to-date resume? After the earth opened and swallowed Korah, who tried it, and after Uzziah, got that terrible case of acne in the face called leprosy when he tried to go in and worship before the Lord? You'd want a current genealogy proving that you were a descendant of Aaron. And if you didn't have it, you were considered polluted and put out of the priesthood. You lost your job. That was the order of Aaron. Genealogy was all important. Mother, father, beginning of days, end of life, and descent. Five characteristics essential to Old Testament priesthood. I'm not going to turn you to the rest of the passages, but you know there are passages in the Old Testament that say Aaron begat Eliezer, and Eliezer begat the next high priest, and so on right down the line. There's fathers, there's mothers mentioned. Oh yes, mothers will be mentioned in those genealogies of particular women that God wants to include. Descent is proven from Aaron. Beginning of days is mentioned when they were begotten. End of days is mentioned when they died. When one priest would die, they'd have to bring another one in. The high priest. When we come to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, without beginning of days, without end of life, is referring to the priesthood of Melchizedek. 
as far as the Old Testament scriptures revealed, this man did not have a mother and father, nor descent, nor beginning, nor end of life. Because we're, he's just interjected there in Genesis 14, and then the record leaves. Every high priest of the order of Aaron had all five characteristics. Melchizedek is given without any of them. But made like unto the Son of God. Did the Son of God have a father? I'll help you out on the first one. No, he did not. If Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God, then we have to make the Son of God fit. Verse 3. Did he have a father? He did not have a human father. He did not descend by human generation in Aaron's order. Did he have a mother? In his divine nature, did he have a mother? Or was he without beginning of days? Does he have an end of his life? We read this morning in Psalm 110 that he has the dew of youth. Does he have descent from Aaron as far as his priesthood is concerned? His royalty, yes. Kingship, yes. Through the tribe of Judah. Priesthood, no. No descent. Melchizedek was not Jesus Christ. Melchizedek was a man that God specially dealt with under the Old Testament who was a priest in the city of Jerusalem and he was also the king. But God made him, God blessed him, God gave him his office, and God recorded a bare minimum of information in order to have him present a dark picture of what Jesus Christ was going to be like. Can you imagine being a Jew without the benefit of Hebrews? Melchizedek. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. He must have been quite a priest. And then David over in Psalm 110 tells us that another order of priests is going to arise, another, another priest is going to arise after the order of Melchizedek. Must, it must mean that this Melchizedek priesthood is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. Can you imagine a Jewish mind thinking through these things? Look over at Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8 and verse 5. To get an idea of what a type is. See, Melchizedek is a type, a figure, a shadow of the true. And a figure, a type, or a shadow isn't the very thing. It's a dark picture of it. In Hebrews 8, 5 we read, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. That is, the, the Levites. Serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that is God speaking, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Jesus Christ is the pattern. Melchizedek is a dark picture of it. By what is not said. Can you follow what I'm saying? Melchizedek is a dark picture of Christ by what is not said. We're not given his mother, father, any descent, beginning of days, or end of life. He appears by Jewish records, which were God-inspired, to be an eternal priest. A mysterious, unique, Eternal priest. And that's what verse 3 tells us. Made like unto the Son of God, 
abideth a priest continually. Because no one ever read about the death of Melchizedek. No one ever read about his beginning. No one ever read about his parents. No one ever read about his descent. Melchizedek gives us the type, the picture of an eternal priest. And he was made like unto what the Son of God would be in his combined human and divine nature. That's the resume of Melchizedek. King and priest of the Most High God. King of righteousness, king of peace, an eternal priest as far as the Old Testament spoke of him. A picture that we should be able to see Jesus Christ from. Now verses 4 through 7. Verses 4 through 7 prove the relationship of Melchizedek to Abraham, that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Look at verse 7. If you want to mark another section, it's verses 4 through 7. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Paul's saying there's no way you can refute that. Whoever does the blessing is greater than the one who receives the blessing. The blessor is greater than the blessee. Verse 4. Now consider, see we've covered the resume in verses 1 through 3, now we move into a second section. Now consider how great this man was. Talking to Hebrews. Consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now if you were a Hebrew, could you think of a more important man than Abraham? The promises of God that they were to be a nation, that they were to have a multitude, a seed that would be like the stars of heaven, that in Abraham's seed would all the nations of the earth be blessed. I mean, if it wasn't for us Jews, what would you Gentiles be like? It was a Jewish mindset. Because God had given them the promises through Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation. The first man to be called an Hebrew as far as Scripture is concerned. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. They knew about Abraham. Abraham was his own priest. How many times did Abraham offer his own offerings? How many times did Abraham pray? How many times did God come down and talk to Abraham? How many... Do you remember Abraham and God dickering over the future of Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham had power with the Almighty God. And now the Hebrew mind is forced to consider something. Think about it. I mean, Paul's just leading these people along like he's done so far in this book. Think about this fact. Abraham, you know what a priest he was with God, what leverage he had with the Lord, the blessings God gave him, the promises that were given to Abraham. Think about the fact that Abraham gave the tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek. Now, who is greater in a spiritual sense? And who has the greater privileges of God? They who receive the tithes or they who give the tithes as far as the office and authority relative to the worship of God. Obviously, they who receive the tithes. Now consider this. You Jews who are worried about losing your priesthood. And he's building his case. He abides a priest continually, we read in his resume. Now that's something they've never met before. Now in this second section, consider how important Abraham thought this Melchizedek was. Verse 5, And verily, that is, it is true, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, 
that is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. That verse is saying this. It is a great privilege to receive tithes of your brethren. It is a privilege of your office. Because all the twelve sons of Jacob were equal. But God chose one and said, The rest of you will support him while he serves me. That's a privilege. And that's all verse 5 is trying to communicate. To the Hebrew mind, receiving tithes is a great privilege granted by God. And it took the law in order to convince the other tribes to give tithes unto Levi. Now Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Verse 6, But he whose descent is not counted from them, Melchizedek didn't even have the law of Moses to justify his tithes, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Abraham had the promises of God, the promises of a land, a great people, heaven. All those promises were given to Abraham. Would you call Abraham blessed Abraham? Would you consider him a blessed man? Who is greater, he who blesses or they who are blessed? Those that do the blessing are greater. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham had all these promises the Jews considered so important. And yet, resume of Melchizedek that makes him an eternal priest in a shadow. Section number two is verses four through seven. That because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and because Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Melchizedek was a greater man in the service of God than was Abraham. He's building his case. Let's move to section number 3. Verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10 are going to shift from Melchizedek and Abraham to Melchizedek and Levi. He's already... He's already established without contradiction. That means it's irrefutable. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. That that ends in verse 7. Now in verses 8 through 10, how does Melchizedek compare to Levi? Here's his reasoning. Verse 8, And here, that is under the Old Testament, here in the Jewish nation, men that die receive tithes. But there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Now, that's, an, that's a difficult little phrase, isn't it? It is witnessed that he liveth. It's speaking of Melchizedek. Does it say Melchizedek lives? Does it say Melchizedek lives, or does it say it is, wit, it is, it is witnessed that he liveth? Where, it, where is it witnessed that he liveth? In, in Genesis chapter 14, where no death is given, without beginning of days nor end of life. That's where it's witnessed. As far as the witness of Scripture, Melchizedek was an eternal priest. It is no deeper than that. Melchizedek is a shadowy, obscure, dark picture of Jesus Christ based on what was not recorded in the Bible. No mother, no father, no beginning, no end, no descent. Five points. It is witnessed that he liveth. How is it witnessed? By not telling us when he died. That's how it's witnessed. We know Melchizedek is under consideration because it is still speaking of the tithes that Abraham paid to him. 
Verse 9, And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes. Now Levi is the one who receives tithes under the law. The law says, Levi, you are worthy of the privilege of your office to receive tithes of the other tribes of Israel. And as I may so say, Paul's just, you know, let's just think about this, Hebrews. We've proved that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Let's compare him to Levi. I think we can safely say that Levi, who receives tithes under the law, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. God deals with men seminally. That means they are contained in the reproductive ability of men. For instance, when Adam ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Romans 5.12 tells us, when he sinned, you sinned. When he sinned, you sinned. Because we were all in Adam, considered reproductively and considered legally. Because we were there reproductively. Are God's children reproductively in Jesus Christ? Is he able to reproduce children? Easily. Easily. He speaks and they live. The hour cometh and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. God is able to reproduce spiritual beings in regeneration, which means to generate them again the second time. But the point is here, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, because Levi descended from Abraham, Abraham is obviously greater than Levi. And if Abraham paid the tithes, then Levi obviously paid the tithes because Levi cannot exceed his own father. And he was in his own father seminally. That is, in the power of reproduction, Levi was there just waiting to be born. Let's not get off into the wild imaginations of whether God has created all the souls sent in the beginning and they're all matched up with the seminal reproductive power of man and sometime during life they come together. But in the mind of God, in His legal dealings with men, He sees all men through certain representatives in their fathers. That's why we many times pay for the sins of our fathers. God visits the iniquities of the children to the third and the fourth generation because you did those sins in your father. Ever thought of confessing some of those sins for your fathers and grandfathers? Abraham's Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Why? Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. You mean the father of the high priest and of all the priests paid tithes to another priest? What a comparison. Melchizedek is considerably greater than was Levi. Let's move to the next section, verse 11. I'm going to keep reviewing here to keep it in mind to see how it's broken up. Chapter, uh, the first three verses, the resume of Melchizedek, that he's a unique high priest that abideth continually. He's an eternal priest. Verses 4 through 7, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because Abraham paid Melchizedek tithes and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, must be greater. Verses 8 through 10, Melchizedek is greater than Levi because Levi, the father of all Old Testament priests, paid tithes to Melchizedek in his father Abraham. Now verses 11 through 14. The point here is 
Brethren, if perfection would have come and by, would have come by the Levitical priesthood, if Aaron and his sons and his grandsons would have been all the priests you needed, why in the world did David, 500 years after their ordination, call for a new priest after the order of Melchizedek? Since God calls for a new priest only 500 years after Levi, we must stand in need of a better priest. And if there is a new order of priests, there must be a new law as far as priesthood is concerned. That's the message of verses 11 through 14. Let's get it now in the question. Verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, would a Hebrew have a tendency to think that? Absolutely. They thought they had it all in their Old Testament religion. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, that is the most subtle. That is the most subtle of all phrases in this book. He is not dealing with the law right now. That's why it's in parentheses. He's not dealing with the law now. He's going to deal with the law in chapters 8, 9, and 10. But the Levites gave the law, and that, that is the ceremonial law, the law of who would be priests, the law of how they would sacrifice, the law of what sacrifices were to be made, the feast days, and all the ceremonial religion of the Old Testament given by the Levites. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Why does Psalm 110 say, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why doesn't it say thou art a priest forever after the order of Aaron? It's obvious that the order of Aaron must be inferior and God is making something better. Because you would not, God would not replace something better with something worse. Now, sometimes we do that. We sell one automobile thinking it's giving us trouble and the next one we purchase is worse than the one we sold. God doesn't make mistakes like that. If he's calling for a new order of priests, that order of priests is superior to what went before. Now, if you Hebrews think the Levitical order of priesthood was perfect, and it had everything you needed, it was complete, it was full, it was mature, it, you, ha you had everything you needed to worship God, why in the world would God call for a new order of a priest in Psalm 110? The answer is obvious to this question, is it not? The Levitical priesthood was not perfect, and we need a better priest than Levi and Aaron. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Why, do, why did Paul reason that? Because it was the law that said the priests will be the sons of Aaron. And if we have new priests that are not the sons of Aaron, and they're not after the order of Aaron, the law must be passing away also. Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken, who's that? Jesus Christ pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. One time a man from Judah tried to enter in, Uzziah, and he got leprosy in the forehead when he tried to enter into the temple and offer incense before the Lord. No man gave attendance at the altar from the tribe of Judah. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. 
The reasoning of verses 12 through 14 are the law is passing away also. The law established the fact that the priests under the Old Testament were to be Levites, and then among the Levites, the sons of Aaron. The fact that Jesus Christ, that Psalm 1, 10 and verse 4 speaks concerning, was from the tribe of Judah, proves the law has been changed. Here's where we run into a real problem that I'm not going to deal with this Sunday, but until when we get to the law, some will say, from this verse and other verses like it, we're no longer under the law. The law of God has passed away. Can't you read that in Hebrews 7? The part of the law under consideration right here is the ceremonial law of the Old Testament priesthood. That went away. The law that said, thou shalt not kill, has never gone away. Go read Romans chapter 13. You can read it again. Go read Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said he did not come to destroy that law, but to fulfill it. And then he defined it for you. If you're angry with your brother in your heart without a cause, you're guilty of that commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Those commandments have not been done away. The priesthood, the ceremonial law, the way they worship God has been changed. Verses 11 through 14, because Jesus Christ came from the tribe of Judah. Let me just interject here. For those of you who like to study your Bibles, this is one of those passages that proves you are, you can argue from the negative in the Bible. You can argue from the negative in the Bible. Does it ever say in the Bible that you couldn't be a priest if you were from Judah? No, it doesn't. All it says is, the priests come from Levi. And Paul argues from the negative of that. If God said priests come from Levi, therefore we know God intended priests do not come from Judah. If the New Testament says we ought to sing in a New Testament worship service, therefore we conclude just as securely we don't play or beat on drums. That's how we argue. It's called the argument from silence. God said nothing of the tribe of Judah. That's his whole point. God didn't say anything about the tribe of Judah. Therefore, there were no priests from the tribe of Judah because God said where the priests were to come from. Verses 15 through 19. Verses 15 through 19. Let's go back. Verses 1 through 3, the resume of Melchizedek. He's an eternal priest by what the Old Testament doesn't say about him. Verses 4 through 7, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And remember, what we're proving here is that this priest that was to come would be after the order of Melchizedek. So we need to find out about Melchizedek. He's got an endless priesthood. He's greater than Abraham. Verses 8 through 10, he's greater than Levi. Verses 11 through 14, his priesthood is based on a new law, for the old law is passing away. And you poor Hebrews don't get hung up on that old law. It's passing away. And obviously God had in mind it's passing away a long time ago when he said, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and not after Aaron. Already bringing in a new priesthood. Verses 15 through 19 describe the basis of Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to that of Aaron. What was the basis for Aaron's priesthood? God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 41, Take Aaron and his sons and consecrate them into the office of priest. The office of the Old Testament priesthood was by commandment. The priesthood of Melchizedek 
is after the power of an endless life. Look at verses 15 through 19. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest. Here is an even stronger reason why Melchizedek is superior to Levi and Aaron. The reason just given in verses 11 through 14 is because the law is passing away. God wants a new order of priests that are superior to the Aaronic priesthood. But here's even a better reason. Verses 15 through 19. Verse 16, Who is made? Not after the law of a carnal commandment. I mean, God simply said, among a group of men that were all equal, He said, I've chosen you, I've designated this section over here to be my priests. They were all equal. They're just based on a carnal commandment. An earthly, fleshly, temporal, physical, visible commandment. That's the Old Testament. All of those things. Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. This Melchizedek priesthood will be based on inherent value and nature. The nature of this man that would become the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek would have the power of an endless life. Therefore, far superior to those priests that were equals to those they represented, but simply chosen by the carnal commandment of God. Verse 17, For he testifieth, Thou art a priest, and where are the most important words? Forever. After the order of Melchizedek, the most important words are forever. The most important words tie in with the dew of thy youth. From Psalm 110. Forever are the most important words of Psalm 110 and verse 4, as we'll see before we end this chapter. And we see it right here, because in those words, they teach the power of an endless life. Verse 19, For there is very, verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. The commandment that went before that said any descendant of Aaron is to be a priest was unprofitable and weak. Those men died. They didn't have the power of an endless life. How would you like to go through three, five, ten, twenty priests in your lifetime? Wouldn't you like the first one that has got to know you, that knows how to intercede on your behalf, that knows how to commiserate with your problems? Just the time you're getting to know your priest, he dies. And you need to start all over again convincing the new priest that you're really sincere, but you've had some problems. The power of an endless life. What kind of a priest is that but a far superior one to that of the Levites? Maybe you had a good priest that was very faithful. Then you lost him and a priest came along that didn't really take his job all that seriously. The power of an endless life makes a superior priest. Verse 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before. That is the Old Testament law that ordered the priests from the tribe of Levi. That commandment was disannulled for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Now that's a strong word. Disannul. We don't even use that word any longer. We use the word annul. Because annul means to put an end or a stop to something. To abolish, cancel, or do away with it. You've heard of marriages being annulled. That means to treat them like they never existed, to abolish them. Disannul 
adds the word dis, which is a negative prefix, adding emphasis to the annulment. Dis, when it is attached to annul, is an intensive word that means utterly, completely. Paul's trying to make a point here to these Hebrews. The Old Testament commandment that made priests from the sons of Aaron has been totally put away. Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And how do we draw nigh unto God? Let me give you a hint. Chapter 4, verse 16. How do we draw nigh unto God? Boldly. On what basis? The better hope that we have. And what is that better hope? Jesus, the Son of God that is passed into the heavens, our priest that was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. Those priests died themselves. Here they are offering sacrifices. You want to be saved from death? And the guy keels over with a coronary right there at the altar. Are you impressed with that priesthood? How perfect is that? Jesus Christ has the power of an endless life, a far superior priesthood. Let's go to the next section, verses 20 through 22. Verses 1 through 3, the resume of Melchizedek. Verses 4 through 7, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Verses 8 through 10, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Verses 11 through 14, Melchizedek proves a changing of the law. Verses 15 through 19, Melchizedek proves the power of an endless life is far superior to priests that die. And that's really been the whole theme of the whole chapter. Abideth a priest continually. The power of an endless life. In verses 20 through 22, we have another reason why Melchizedek is superior to Aaron. And that is the fact that God swore when God made Melchizedek a priest, and he never swore when he made Aaron a priest. You say, well, that's an awful trite point. The oath of God is given to us for all confirmation that we might have full assurance. Look, at, look back at chapter 6. Why did God swear? Why does he have to swear from time to time? Because we're unbelievers. We're usually unbelievers. Verse 16 tells us why men do swear. Men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. There's no questioning, there's no arguing when men swear, when they swear properly in a generation where swearing is taken seriously. It's hard to do it anymore. Verse 17, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. He swore simply to give you greater confidence of what he is doing. The heirs of promise. His counsel is immutable, but he added something to that. He swore that it would surely take place that way. If we do not have a priest, every bit as superior as Melchizedek, and in fact greater, if we do not have a priest like that, then God is not God. Because he swore and would not repent. 
thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, so that by two immutable things, that is, unchangeable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. And for a mind that wants a priest, that wants someone to be working hard for them 24 hours a day in the presence of God, by name, taking care of you, offering a sacrifice for your sins, interceding on your behalf, that God does not judge you. If you want a priest like that, don't you want to be sure he's there? And God made it sure with an oath. But he never did that with Aaron. Verse 20. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, there's some negatives there. I hope you can follow the reasoning. Melchizedek was made a priest with an oath. Verse 21, for those priests, this is under the Old Testament, were made without an oath. But this, with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent. And I wanted you to see those words in Psalm 110, verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. How do we know that Jesus is a better surety, a better priest of a better testament? Well, in verses 20 through 22, the reason is Jesus was made a priest with an oath. God swore about this matter, and he never did that with the priests under the Old Testament. They were made without an oath. So that you could have strong consolation that while four, five billion people in this world are wishing they had a priest, we've got a priest. And we've got him as sure as God exists. If you do not have a priest right now working for you in the presence of God, then God is not God. Because he swore he would give you a priest forever. Like Melchizedek. That's verses 20 through 22. Verses 23 through 25. Back to the main theme. In verses 23 through 25, Paul argues this line of reasoning. Under the Old Testament, just think of all the priests you had to have. Maybe three, maybe five, maybe twenty. Jesus Christ is one priest with one sacrifice. Far superior to a whole string of priests. How would you like to be in the greatest court case of your existence? A court case determining your eternal destiny. And in this court case, you've employed the very finest attorney that you could find. And he's gone to court and you've witnessed him arguing the finest line of reasoning to prove your innocence before this tribunal. And you're just glorying in this attorney you have who's putting down the prosecuting attorney and ridiculing them and just blasting all the charges that have been raised against you. And there's one more hearing to be made. And he dies. The bloody... But he died. Now what do you do? What do you do in court when your attorney dies? Your intercessor died. Well, you go hire another one. Well, now what does this second attorney have to do? He has to rebuild the entire case to know where you stood in order to present the same arguments in this final hearing. He's got to rebuild the whole thing. And you're really doubting. And he comes to court. And he's about to present your case. You have got him primed. He's ready. You believe he's as competent as the previous one. 
And he gets up there and in the fervor of his advocacy for you, he drops over of a coronary. And he dies on you. It's pitiful, isn't it? It's almost ridiculous. But did you know that there were many priests in the Old Testament just when you thought you had a real good one? Like Samuel. Samuel dies. Just like when you, you really appreciated Aaron. Aaron dies. And you need another priest. Look at verse 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. That is an attorney you want. This isn't dealing so much with his sacrifice as it is with the time he's able to intercede on your behalf. He has an unchangeable priesthood. He has the dew of youth. He does not grow old. He does not become weak or infirmed. His mind is not going senile. He retains the full ability to persuade God with His sacrifices on your behalf. Verse 25, Wherefore? Here's the conclusion of this argument, verses 23 through 25. Wherefore He is able, not He might, I mean, anytime you use a priest that's a man, you're wondering, <laughs> I wonder if he got through today. I wonder if he has any unconfessed sins. Can you Think about it. Wouldn't you be wondering that? I've never been to a confessional. You know, where you whisper through the grate to uh, Father O'Leary to ask him to forgive your sins. I've never been there. Some of you have been there. And you go home wondering, I wonder if he got through today. Because if he didn't get through, <laughs> you didn't get through. And you have not been forgiven. Wherefore, he is able. This man who has an unchangeable priesthood is able to save them to the uttermost. And that uttermost there isn't describing the great efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. It is describing the length of time that he can be your intercessor. He can save them to the uttermost. Do you know what that means? He can save them through the final hearing. That's what it means. He can save them to the othermost. It's not like you're going to get close to heaven, close to being proclaimed just before God, and then have this one keel over by reason of death, not suffered to continue his intercession. He has an unchangeable priesthood. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That defines the word uttermost, seeing he ever liveth. We're talking about the time element of a priest. You don't want it to be cut short by reason of death. You want him to be able to save you to the uttermost and not die and quit his work. But to continue there, he abides a priest forever, as we learned early on in this chapter about Melchizedek. Look back in your Bibles at Romans chapter 5 just briefly. Romans chapter 5. I think sometimes, and I fear for it, that we underestimate the value of Christ's life now. We love to look at His death, and we're going to do that this morning. But brethren, that sacrificial death that we're going to consider this morning is of no good, of no value, 
unless some priest took it into the presence of God for us. The fact that Christ shed His blood on the cross was not enough. Listen to how Paul puts it. And I fear that sometimes we forget this. Romans 5.10, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Is the life of Christ now equal to His death? Or did I leave out two words? For if, and this is true, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. I mean, let's think about it for a moment. Dying. Dying by itself. And I'm not trying to put down the death of Christ. Obviously, our atonement lies in His blood. But the point I'm making, if His blood had not made it to the Holy of Holies, we would end up in hell. Much more, we shall be saved by His life. We all think back to the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. You know, everyone wants to celebrate Christmas in this world and think about the birth of Christ and Easter and think about the resurrection of Christ and Good Friday, the death of Christ. I love to think about the fact that that man, Christ Jesus, who died, now lives for me. He has my name there in the throne room of God and He's interceding on my behalf and reminding God what He did for me. I want to look through the cross into the throne room of heaven where that high priest is sprinkling his own blood on the mercy seat. Much more. Look at Romans chapter 8 and see if Paul and I don't agree on this point. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? That is, who would lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, and he also rose again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. What did I leave out in this verse? Yea, rather, something better. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. I mean, who wants a priest that dies? Who wants a priest that dies? You want a priest that died and then lives forever. And you come over to Revelation 1 and verse 18, and he says, I am alive forevermore. This is our high priest, Jesus Christ. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. He, that is Jesus Christ, is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him. Can you imagine yourself being a Hebrew at this point? I mean, Paul has chopped down, cut down, refuted, shown to be inferior. Those old priests under the Old Testament showing Christ superior from every standpoint of comparison. And the last and the most important in this chapter is the fact that he lives forever. And he doesn't die like the priest did under the Old Testament. And he can save us to the uttermost. He's not going to die at the wrong moment and leave us hanging in our sins. He's able to save. 
verses 26 through 28. This is the last comparison, and this is called the impeccability of Jesus Christ. You say, I've never heard of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. Well, if something's impeccable, that means it's beyond reproach. You can't find anything to criticize or pick on. It's a theological term used to describe the fact that Jesus Christ could not sin. The impeccability of Jesus Christ, verses 26 through 28. For such an high priest became us. You know what the word became means, don't you, in its secondary definition? That dress is very becoming. Your suit becomes you. It means it is suitable, it is fit, it is appropriate for you. It enhances you. For such an high priest was appropriate, was fit, was proper, was right for us. For such an high priest enhances us. For such an high priest is exactly what we needed to be everything we should be. For such an high priest became us. You say, is the word become used that way in the New Testament? Okay. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. First four words. For it became him. It was fit, appropriate, right, suitable for Jesus Christ to be made like unto his brethren. Back a couple of more pages to Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Do you mean you can speak things that aren't sound doctrine and when you speak them then they change and become sound doctrine? That's the first use of the word become. To change from one state into another. Or does that mean speak the words that are fit, appropriate, suitable for sound doctrine? Obviously the latter. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. For such an high priest became us who is, and here are descriptions of his impeccability, holy. Had the Old Testament Jews ever had a holy priest? No. Harmless. Did they ever have a harmless priest? Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, but took all the abuse when he offered his sacrifice of himself. Undefiled. Did the Israelites ever have a priest that was undefiled? They all were defiled with sin. Separate from sinners. Why, the priests under the Old Testament were sinners. Jesus Christ is separate from sinners in His impeccable nature. Did they ever have a priest that was made higher than the heavens, who was right in the presence of God? Or did they have a man, one time only a year, tiptoed in very carefully into the Holy of Holies and offered blood for himself, hoping that it was the right day on the calendar and that God would accept his sacrifice? reaching God through an earthly tent. This priest is higher than the heavens. Does that priest become us? Is that priest fit and appropriate for sinners? Verse 27, Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's? For this he did once, when he offered up himself. That Old Testament every morning, you had the morning sacrifice of a lamb. Every evening you had the evening sacrifice of a lamb and thousands of rams, lambs, and other animals in between. Over and over and over again because those sacrifices could not take away sin, Jesus Christ offered 
one sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he does not need daily to reoffer it. It's already been made and it has paid for the sins of his people. Verse 28, <clears throat> For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. You'd have to say, that's true. Amen. At this point, after noticing all the infirmity in the first 27 verses, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, that is, it's found in Psalm 110 and verse 4, as opposed to the book of Leviticus, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Consecrated means to be made holy. The impeccability of Jesus Christ. Verses 26 through 28. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. They have two chief infirmities described in this chapter. Sin and death. Sin and death. Sins, they have to pay for their own sins in order for God to even hear their prayers. Death. They're not allowed to continue. And you lose your priest when you need him. Jesus Christ, no sin. Holy, harmless, and undefiled. Consecrated forevermore. Jesus Christ liveth forever. Abideth a priest continually. Jesus Christ is a most excellent high priest. For sinners this morning that understand the doctrine of Scripture, and it's not so much a feeling as it is an understanding that God will extract from sinners every ounce of pain, blood, and suffering possible in order to pay His justice and judgment. And this infinite God cannot overlook nor clear guilty sinners. We stand in need of a priest. And there is at this hour a man who died but who lives forever at the right hand of the majesty on high who is a priest called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But not just called of God after that order, called of God to be a priest forever. And he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. Now you can come to God two ways. You can come to God passively, which Jesus Christ did when he ascended up on high. He offered his blood for you, though it was going to be 1900 years before you were born. You went passively that time. But now we can come boldly unto the throne of grace ourselves and be heard and receive practical forgiveness of sins by laying claim to this high priest. Do you believe you've got a priest? Do you appreciate the need for a priest? Every religion in this world is running around for their priests and gurus to offer sacrifices and pray for them. And we have the greatest priest that this universe could ever have. The Son, consecrated forevermore, ever-living, perfectly impeccable, superior to Abraham, superior to Levi, superior to Aaron, a changing of the law, and able to save. The fires of hell shall consume all those that this priest does not intercede for. But those that he intercedes for shall be saved to the uttermost. 
I thank God for Jesus Christ this day for a priesthood that far exceeds even that of God's own religion under the Old Testament. And it's this day that we shall remember not only His sacrificial death, but what He did with that shed blood. If you can let me read just one more verse. I read over in chapter 9 of this same book, and we're going to get to it. And we'll most likely have the Lord's Supper again in a couple of weeks. But I read in Hebrews 9.14, How much more? Paul liked those words, didn't he? Much more. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews, forget the blood of bulls and of goats. You've got the blood of Christ who offered Himself to God without spot. That ought to purge your conscience. That ought to move you away from the dead works of the Old Testament. And to Gentiles today, the Apostle says the same thing. We have such an high priest. And may God bless us to serve this priest and to honor him the way we should.